Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Turntables and Tea. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. We are now starting a new month, July, which means we'll be diving into the 1970s and all the great music they have to offer. A lot of good stuff coming up this month. And to kick this off, we are starting with a listener suggestion from my father, as I mentioned last week. This is Book of Dreams by the Steve Miller Band. This album was released in March of 1977, and 45 years later, its songs are still super well-known to this day. We're definitely going to dive into it like we always do here. Like we always do. A great way to start off the 70s dive. So much, so much great music that we're still, like you said, listening to to this day. There's so many different sounds from the 70s. I'm I'm super excited about this one. I'm going to get ahead of myself, but there's so many different sounds inside of this album that were explored throughout this era, too. This is a really, really cool jumping off point. Yes, lots of uh, stuff here. Definitely runs the gamut of 70s rock because the Steve Miller band's a bit of an interesting case, so I've heard a lot about them over the years from my father because they were his favorite band growing up. And they started off as this psychedelic blues band in the late 60s and early 70s, and my father had the Anthology album, and he said, yeah, some of the songs on it were pretty weird, like Space Cowboy. Space Cowboy's always been one of those one of those gems where, where you get to sit back and listen, and you're like, what the heck is going on? But you can't help but just jam out to it. Uh, you know, they, they were doing that, like you said, that, that blues psychedelic rock um run but steve miller you know he really forged his reputation early on uh as a chicago's bluesman you know playing with like muddy waters howling wolf buddy guy and chuck berry so and and you hear that you hear that that chicago blues creep in whether he likes it or not and then there's some tracks where it really stands in the forefront of what's going on most definitely but after 1972 Steve Miller kind of streamlined his sound a bit, I guess you could say, to make it a bit more mainstream. And this worked that year. He released the album and single The Joker, which, of course, is a classic. You know, some people call me Maurice. Oh, whoop, whoop. I use that in a daily basis in conversation. That, that's how much of a staple that is. Uh, uh, one, of, one of the greats. Yes, but... The Joker put Steve Miller through to the mainstream and the top of the pop charts. And he had a lot to follow up. And he waited a bit to follow it up until 1976 with the Fly Like an Eagle album, which was also very successful. But he wanted to keep it going. And there was so much recorded during these sessions that many of these songs were used on the follow-up Book of Dreams for March 1977. And... This album was a huge success, too. It had three top 40 hits and made it up to number two on the album's charts. And, of course, it probably would have gone to number one if not for the juggernaut known as Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. That's an album we won't be discussing here, by the way. Just letting you all know it's been discussed to death, so we're not doing that here. But we'll do one of the albums that could have been number one if it weren't for it. There you (laughs) go. Yeah, and so was this this was part of those albums. This is all recorded together in the same session, right? Fly Like an Eagle and Book of Dreams together in one sitting. For the most part, these songs are from the same session. There's one exception that we'll talk about, which is an interesting one. It's one of the hits on the album, actually, that was on here pretty last minute. Gotcha. We'll get to that, but it definitely continues the whole 
vibe of Fly Like an Eagle and its hits. And it did so successfully, I would argue. And this is a really well-regarded album along with that one. In fact, half of the songs on the Steve Miller Greatest Hits 74 to 78 album are from just this album. Yep, that's real. So, yeah, even the non-pop hits got some traction, too, and are beloved by the fans of the band. As they should. I'm at this album period pop or non-pop hits is just a very tightly not even produced but tightly played uh clinic as far as musicianship it is it's mind-blowing this is one of the ones and i like to do it with almost every album but this is one of the ones where you can sit down in a dark room clear your mind put on some noise canceling headphones like some serious serious headphones and listen to this album because there's so much sonic play and experimentation inside of the album and the way it's produced it's such a a treat for the ears i implore anyone get out there close your eyes sit back relax and, and listen to this one in some headphones yes definitely also sounds pretty good on a smart tv too now that's how i listen to there it there you go there you go heard that heard that Yeah, some of these songs I've heard a million times, but it was definitely a bit different to hear them in the context of the album as it was originally intended. So it was all like a new experience somewhat, I guess you could say. Yeah, on that same right, this was one where if it's your first time listening, we always try to take a... uh, a virgin look at these records as best as we can without the nostalgia berries, you know, dripping in and, and getting us all hyped up. This one was the biggest challenge so far for me because there was so much, so many memories and nostalgia tied into it to listen to it with a critical mind was a tough one, but, but it was awesome. <laughs> I, I do have to agree with that on a couple of songs in particular, but We'll discuss our nostalgia during it. I know I plan on doing so. We will spill that tea. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. So I'm ready to dive in, aren't you? I am indeed. Let's do this. So the album begins with an instrumental called Threshold. Kind of sets the tone for the album. It's mostly all synthesizer. I think it's a good intro. It does what it needs to do. It's really just a setup for the next song, though, but it is often played with the next song on radio, classic rock radio, at least. Yeah, this is the one of two times on this album where I question why not do this as a same track, you know, uh, give it its own track. Why not just put it in there? In fact, here we go. First take. I, I, I'm, I'm being totally 100% honest here. I thought they were the same song. I always thought that Threshold was just the opening the Jet Airliner. It was, from what I remember, always played on the classic rock radio stations like that. 
So it was something that you always heard and it was like, oh, that's the start. I always thought it was a long intro, but I never knew that it had its own name and track listing. Yeah, I do agree with that. I think it should have just been the intro to the song. It doesn't need to be its own separate track. But speaking of that, let's go on to track two, the album's signature tune, arguably its biggest billboard hit, Jet Airliner. I was shocked to find out this song is actually a cover. I know, right? Me too. Me too. This is one of the, uh, when, when you're learning about these albums and then a cover that preceded it. Well, of course it preceded it because it's a cover, but then wasn't released the original version until the year 2000. That was mind blowing. Absolutely. It really was. It was written and recorded by singer songwriter, Paul Pina. I hope I pronounced that right. And he recorded it in 1973 but it wasn't released until 2000. But Steve Miller happened to hear this unreleased album, and this song stuck out to him enough to record it during the sessions for Fly Like an Eagle. It wasn't used on that album, but it was used as the lead single for this one, and it was a huge success. It made it all the way up to number eight on the Hot 100, and I've heard this song a million times over the years because this was my dad's favorite Steve Miller song growing up, and he still does love it, and I just heard it on the radio, on CDs so, so many times, and as a kid, I was kind of like, oh, well, it's your dad's favorite song. How cool can it be? So I was like, uh, Jet Airliner, blah. But <laughs> now I have to say it is a really well-done song in its own right, even though I've just heard it so many times, it is a bit hard to look at it objectively. My dad would always make a big deal of the fact that they had to edit this song for radio yeah. because he says a bad word. He says funky shit going down in the city, which was the original lyrics from from Pina. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but for the radio, they changed it to funky kicks in the city. Funky kicks in the city. But my dad always says, yeah, this song has a bad word in it. And <laughs> he wrote in his notes to me for the album. He gave me some of his insight that. He would sing this line as loudly as he could when he was a teenager. <laughs> That's awesome. Bit of teenage rebellion there, yelling out funky shit in the city during Jet Airliner. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. Yeah, this the Jet Airliner coming out of that threshold, coming out of that. You're going to hear me say it a million times this episode, but that sonic manipulation of threshold. And then it's not even like a straight doo doo. It almost, the bass drum almost like falls in on the third and fourth beat of the measure. And then you come in with that iconic boom, bam, boom, bam, down, Such a great way to open this album up. Yes. And my other Jet Airliner story is that in 2018, I saw that the Steve Miller Band was coming to Pier 6. At the time, it was called the MeQ Pavilion, but that's a local venue for us. I had actually never been there before, but I heard a lot about it, and I thought, I just knew we have to go to this, because my dad had never seen the band before, actually. Oh, really? Because he had heard that Steve Miller was late to his concerts a lot, so he was like, no, forget <laughs> it, I'm not paying for that. Okay. Which makes sense, but we decided, no, we're going to do it. My cousin's wife, Leslie, said she saw the band and that they were good and on time. So I thought, okay, I guess he's gotten better. And uh, so I did buy the tickets for my parents and I, and we went to see him in the 
summer of 2018 during the time I was working with the bitch from VOA. Uh-oh, watch out. This was before I realized how horrible that woman truly was, but it's okay. So I went home for the day or weekend or whatever, I don't remember, and we attended the concert, and uh, my dad was getting worried they were not going to play Jet Airliner because the show had been going on for a while and it hadn't been heard yet. But it ended up being the encore. There you go. That's how you do it. How were they live? I, I like to think they were tight and uh, it was a good show. Oh, definitely. He still sounded pretty good. I'm not sure if it was all the original band members. Gotcha. There were probably some replacements over time, but... It was a well-done show, and he definitely did his classic hits and some of the deeper tracks, too. He even did Space Cowboy. There you go. Wow. Okay. It was a really good concert, and Peter Frampton was the opener, and that was pretty good, too. I I remember the billing for this concert at Pier 6, too. That's such a neat place. That was the first time you've seen him. Frampton did his hits as well. Yeah, but of course, Frampton kind of only had so many big hits. He really was kind of a one-album wonder. Their sound complements each other, though. Oh, definitely. And really, I got to hear Show Me The Way live. That's kind (laughs) of what matters there, I think. That's the classic. There you go. There you go. Frampton and Miller. That's nice. Yeah, it was a good show. It was a really good show. So, And an awesome venue to see it at as well. For anybody that doesn't know, Pier 6... It's a beautiful venue, nice amphitheater right on the water. It it always adds to the vibe of the show. A really cool local venue for us. Yes. Going twice this summer. I can't wait. There you go. There you go. I'm trying to get out to that Billy Strings show out there, and I don't think I'm going to make it. But anybody going out, have a good time at Billy Strings out of Pier 6. Yep. I'll be seeing the bare naked ladies with my father and uh, my man Jackson Brown a little more than a week afterwards. Ooh, Jackson Brown. Get down. All right. Love that guy. Heard that. We'll have to discuss him on this podcast at some point. I don't think it'll be this month, but definitely at some point because I love that dude. That'll be great. But enough about Jet Airliner. Yeah, this is why it's so hard to listen to this album with virgin critical ears because so much nostalgia. But yes, enough about Jet Airliner. So next up is Wintertime. I want you to start on this one. Wintertime, uh, right off the bat, is really akin to California Dreaming uh, in my head, like right off the bat. Uh, just the sound and all some of the lyrics, it really, really screamed California Dreaming to me. Where it comes together for me is even though it's just like a simple acoustic folk jam um, and it features that beautiful harmonica by Norton Buffalo. For me, in this track, when they break into that groove, that's just that laid over double tracked uh, lead. Such a beautiful sound. Such a beautiful sound. For a song that sounds like it's going to be, in my opinion, a super long song, it ends up, I think, at like 315 or 320. Really well done. Huge difference for me from the start of the track being like, oh, man, what's is a California Dreaming ripoff into something that I thought was super unique and, and really well put together. Yeah, I loved that harmonica intro. It really showed off the band's blues roots. But these lyrics are pure singer-songwriter, which I love. That's one of my favorite aspects of 70s music are the singer-songwriters of that era. I think it's a great synthesis of two different sounds. To me, it was kind of early Aerosmith meets James Taylor, which... My dad will probably hate that description. He hates James Taylor, but Ooh. I don't. So, oh, no, love the love the James Taylor. 
Come on, Dad. Yep, I disagree with that. So sorry, Dad, but reminds me of him a bit. And this was also the B-side to the next song on the album, Swingtown. Oh, yeah, this was uh, a single release. So B-side was Wintertime? Yeah, I noticed the B-sides on this album, they definitely were going with the idea to give Steve Miller as much money as possible because they're sole writing credits for Steve Miller. Oh, wow. That's a wild way to look at it. Okay, cool. I mean, it makes sense. Why not get those royalties? Most definitely. From the sales of the single. That's pretty smart. Most definitely. Smart man, that's Steve Miller. Smart man. (laughs) Yeah, the next track is Swingtown. I first heard this song when I was nine years old. My family went on a road trip. We went to the Grand Canyon. We didn't drive all the way there, of course, but we drove through the area. And my father made these mix CDs where my mom, himself, and I put songs that we liked from our CDs onto these mixes. I put as much share on there as possible, of course. There you go. But one of the CDs that was heavily featured was the Steve Miller Band's Greatest Hits. And I remember hearing this one a lot, and he would always sing along to it in the car. And I always enjoyed this one. I will say that the lyrics are kind of, there aren't a lot of them. And I do like a lot of lyrics, but the groove is so infectious that I can overlook it. For some reason... The keyboard in this kind of reminds me of Light My Fire by The Doors. I hear you there. I hear you there. They did, they did a lot of that sort of harpsichord sound. I shouldn't say a lot, but they did. They teased around with that harpsichord sound in this album a lot. I, I, I totally agree with you there. The song was also one of the pop hits on the album. It made it to 17 on the Hot 100. And it's continued to be used really heavily in pop culture throughout the years I've come to discover. Its first use, I found this really cool. It, the instrumental for Swingtown was used in commercials for the 79 Ford Mustang. Yeah, man. Which is so cool. It is indeed. And it's also been used in the movie My Girl 2. It was on an episode of The Sopranos, and it's been sung by students at University of Wisconsin-Madison quite frequently. I think they've changed the lyrics a bit to fit their vibe, but okay, it's a bit of a tradition there. So the ripple in the pond of this song goes even farther than that, because it's not necessarily fact, but it... Legend tells us that Greg Leon, who took uh, Randy Rhodes' spot in Quiet Riot, he claims that the verse riff um, to Osborne's Crazy Train came about when him and Rhodes were messing around with the Swingtown riff. And he was like, look what happens when you speed this up. And the next thing you know, boom, Crazy Train comes out of this as well. Yeah, that was pretty crazy to hear for me. Once <laughs> I hear it, it makes perfect sense, actually. Most but definitely. Steve Miller and heavy metal just don't go together, but a Steve Miller song inspired one of the all-time great metal songs. <laughs> that a ripple in the pond, man. It just it, it goes all the way out. It was that was that was one of the neatest uh, facts that I found throughout this. I mean, Steve Miller has had his wild moments when it comes to profanity, lad, and rants, but he's never eaten a bat's head like our Ozzy. (laughs) It's not quite that wild. Not quite, not quite. But yeah, Swingtown, great song, and I just love its effect on our popular culture. Agreed, agreed. That's truly iconic. Yep, that's the 70s. 
You know, the 70s have leaked, not leaked out, but inspired so much of what we know as popular culture to this day. Yes, most definitely. But unfortunately, I think we're done with Swingtown, even though I'd like to keep talking about it. I don't really have much more to add on it. That, that, was, my, that was my final little bit on Swingtown. On to uh, track five. What do we got? True Fine Love. This is for me, not counting the instrumental intro, which shouldn't even be its own track. This is the weakest on the first side for me. I think it's okay. The lyrics are just okay. That's my issue. I think it keeps the pace of the album going just fine, but it doesn't really stick out to me. This is one I could live without. It's not bad, but following Swingtown's a tough act. It's a tough act, almost finishing off the first side right here. In my opinion, you get a look at a cookie cut. I hate to use that word. You get to look at an example of a straightforward pop song straightforward hook you have a walking bass of you know that's just chromatically going upstairs and keeps you going and interesting but it's literally laid out intro verse chorus verse chorus lead verse chorus and then a fade out it's the 70s pop packaging right there it's not a bad song it's not a mind blower but it definitely is just a pop filler i gotta agree with you on this one It, it for me so far in this album, not not my favorite. Yeah, I gotta agree with you on that one. Fortunately, I do think the next song is more interesting, Wish Upon a Star. This one's a little trippy. I think it's kind of a sci-fi lullaby, I would describe it as. It, it, it definitely is trippy. It has that fly like an eagle intro feeling to me, the way it's set up musically with the synthesizers. I'm usually not big on the slow ender of the side but listening to this i could immediately feel that i would want to flip the album you know what i'm saying like you come right off this and the album would stop immediately i'm going side b so i thought it was a wise choice there for the end of the first side i completely agree and uh, of course because of the title this song reminds you automatically a bit of a disney song and I think this should be included in the new Pinocchio movie coming out on Disney Plus in September. That would be cool, but there's no way Disney's going to give up when you wish upon a star. I know they're not going to, but I wish they would. That would be super cool. That'd you should be super play cool. this over the end credits. It would be cool as hell, but that, that some would parents be. would probably be angry. They'd be like, no, this is stoner music, and it's nah. poisoning our children. It's somebody's, like, somebody's always going to be angry. Disney, if you're listening... Perfect, perfect credit roll music right here for yeah. Pinocchio. The movie's not out yet. It's not too late. Not too late, Disney. Get on it. The other thing I wanted to add about this song is because of its childlike lyrics, in a way it reminded me of a very different song that came out 12 years later. It's a track on Madonna's Like a Prayer album called Dear Jesse, which is a meditation on growing up too fast. And I wonder if this song is too. <laughs> that's, that's, I have to go back and listen with that thought process. I'm not super familiar with the Madonna track, but I'd like to listen to both and compare well you will eventually because spoiler alert we are discussing like a prayer on this podcast come on you think i expect anything less (laughs) (laughs) so we'll talk about dear jesse then i don't know if madonna heard this song i kind of doubt that she did but it would be cool if she did i wonder if she did but i 
kind of doubt it based on what I know about her. <laughs> Dear Jesse will be discussed in the future here, as will the rest of Like a Prayer. I'm getting way ahead of myself. <laughs> It's all good. So instead of turning over the Like a Prayer, we're going to turn it over the side B of the album, which begins with the last big pop hit on the album, Jungle Love. The jam, the jam piece coming right off. I mean, what I've always been in wonderment of how they were like, all right, this is the start of the song, but it's such a great one. It's like a weird little whistle. You know, I love that intro. Such a great classic intro from Miller. Oh my goodness, yes. And so this song was written by the band's bassist at the time, Lonnie Turner, with Greg Douglas, and they originally wrote it for Dave Mason. Really? It was written for somebody else, huh? Yes, but that didn't end up happening, and Lonnie Turner gave Steve Miller the demo. Miller loved it, and he ended up recording this song in half an hour on the last day of sessions for the album. I did read that. I did read that. Half an hour. That shows you love a song. Yeah. And interestingly, my dad says this is a great song, but he doesn't think it really fits on the album. I think the fact that it was added on so late kind of explains it, because this does sound different than other songs here. It is heavier than anything here, I believe, but it was such a monster track that it had to be done. I'm glad it was done, and I'm glad, in my opinion, I think it's a perfect start for that side, because if you started this side with Electro Lux Imbroglio, I feel like it would just be like the other side, you know? It would be like flipping over to the same side. You're in another sonically driven intro, and and then you're going into a slower song. I think this is a cool get you pumped up for the second side. I used to always try to jam this album and play it on guitar. And I'm looking through this and I found out that Greg Douglas's guitar on this, uh, it's tuned to an open A and it makes so much sense looking back on, on playing this song. And it's the, uh, you know, it's the only guitar, one guitar on this track recording too. So one of my faves, man, Jungle Love. Yeah. This is a classic, and this one has a really great pop culture reference that means a lot to me personally, because this is one of my very favorite shows that I've seen every episode of more than once. This song was featured at the end of an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond, where the family is snowed in at Frank and Marie Barone's house, and of course they end up arguing because they did that every episode, let's be real. (laughs) But at one point, Robert turns on the radio... And hears Jungle Love playing and yells out, oh my God, I love this song. And his, at the time, ex-girlfriend, but eventual wife, Amy McDougal from the conservative Christian family, he asks her if she remembers when it was played at the policeman's ball. (laughs) And they start dancing to it. And then so do Ray and Deborah. And of course, Frank and Marie are like, this is dancing. This is ridiculous. (laughs) But they're all jamming out to it. And, It was definitely one of Ray and Deborah's happier moments on the show because they argued all the time. Come on. I heard that. That was Ray and Deborah. But this moment made a big impression on viewers, I guess, because it was at times at least used as the show's theme song for its last three seasons. I'm not sure how often. Oh, wow. 
I'm a bit confused on that aspect of it because I didn't watch this show when it was in first run. I saw the reruns a few years after it went off the air. I remember my parents used to watch this show a lot when I was growing up, but I never remember hearing Jungle Love and it certainly wasn't included in the reruns of it or even on the current Peacock streaming or when it was on Netflix. So I wonder how often it was used in original broadcasts of the show. If anybody can verify that for me, I would be grateful. Yeah, another, well, a mystery in my own head about this one was I always thought these were anecdotal lyrics from Miller. So I was all coming into this album. I was like, I'm going to find out who we met on that island. Whose island was it? And... To no avail because, of course, it was written for somebody else entirely now. Um, but yeah, I, I was on the hunt to figure out what this song really meant because I've it's always piqued my imagination. I always I just pictured him literally on somebody's island. <laughs> I know. The last thing I have to say about this song, though, is it's a negative hot tea take. As good as this song is, it's not as good as Jungle Love by the time. Oh, putting it up against... The time. Ooh, ooh, hot tea take. Hot tea take. That's apples and oranges right there. That's apples I and oranges. I know it is, but they have the same title. I can't help it. They do. They do indeed. Woo, I'm not touching that one, Char. <laughs> I love them both. They both have a an equal place in my heart. They're both great, but they are. They are Purple indeed. Rain has a very special place in my heart, so the time wins for me. There you oh, go. oh, there you go. My jungle love. Don't get me started, boy. <laughs> my dad won't like that one either. He's not a huge Prince fan. That's our biggest musical disagreement because Prince is the go. So ah, there you go, man. There you go. But, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely dive into some, some Morris Day and some Prince and all types of beautiful talk. Oh, most definitely. Don't ever think that won't happen. It will. (laughs) On this show, it will. It definitely will. That'll be a good one. So next up is the instrumental track you mentioned earlier, Electric Lux and Boglio. This one is less than a minute. It doesn't really make an impression on me. I really don't have anything to say about this one. This is my second time, like I alluded to earlier. You know, there's two times on this album where I say, why give it its own track listing? Just let it be sacrifice you know it's literally that it's an intro to sacrifice so let it be sacrifice but again we're back to this sonic experimentation it's a great one for the earphones it's a it's a neat little intro into sacrifice yes and now sacrifice the writing credits of this song interested me as well so one of the writers was curly cook who i'd never heard of and he did not have a wikipedia page okay but the other one was les dudek who i discussed on the share podcast he was in a band with her called black rose and dated her and it was a failure of an experiment but it's one of my favorite share albums and he also co-wrote a song with stevie nicks on her rock a little album called sister honey which is one of my favorites on that album take it so i like les dudak let me make that clear I, i hear you was he part of the steve miller band he was not but he played on this track got you okay this song's just okay for me. I think it goes on too long. I, I enjoy this track. It, it strikes a lot of chords for me. The the almost pizzicato harmonics that lead this track off and, and like worked in there with the driving electric lead. I, I really enjoy a little bit of a Pink Floyd uh, vibe to me at some points in this song, especially with the wind chime like uh, keyboard pieces on it. 
It's not my favorite, but it, it's it's a neat one here. Well, like I said last week, I'm not the biggest Pink Floyd fan, so if it's like that, maybe that's why. <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. It just rings, it rings to your Pink Floyd negative part of the brain. Admittedly, again, the songs that I liked by this guy before were complete apples and oranges. The Black Rose album is New Wave. It sounds more like Blondie than anybody, not Steve Miller or Pink Floyd. So it's apples and oranges. I can't compare the two. And Sister Honey is just 80s synth pop gloriousness. This is completely different. I guess Dudek's versatile. I'll give him that. And I also hate to say it, another shared title with a hit song by a big artist, Elton John, His Sacrifice is Much Better. (laughs) <laughs> I love that you do that. I, I didn't know another sacrifice song, but I love that you you make those bridges. <laughs> well, it got a revival, the Elton John one, because it's the one he sings in the song he does with Dua Lipa. That's where Cold, Cold Heart comes from. Oh, dig it, dig it. I love so, it. And of course, Cold Heart is an awesome song, too. That it is, that it is. The Old Sacrifice. Next up is a more traditional Steve Miller song, I guess I would say, a bit more bluesy. This is The Steak. I love the sound of this song. This, again, because of the bluesiness of it, it reminds me of early Aerosmith. And I love Aerosmith. So uh, I love the sound of this song. It was written by guitarist David Denny. So it makes sense why the guitar is so cool. The lyrics to me are intriguing, but they feel like an unfinished poem. For me, this is where he gets back to his roots. You know, we're talking about blues to its finest. All the way down to the guitar mimicking the nobody loves you like the way I do. And then the guitar right behind it. It is that blues. It's the stuff he cut his teeth on before he found this psychedelic era of sound for him. And I like to think it's one of those times where someone shines on their own album or outshines a little bit of the rest of the album because their true heart is in it. Uh, so that that bluesy sound on this just screams and th- this track takes off. All right. My dad loves this one too. He tied it for second place on the album with Swingtown right behind his beloved Jet Airliner. Yeah, this is up there for me on this album. Uh, I, I really enjoy this song. So next up is My Own Space, the second to last song on the album. This one also has more of a singer-songwriter vibe. Definitely has some prog elements musically. It was written by early member of the band Bobby Winkleman. He wrote it with Jason Cooper. I actually really like this one, and I think it's because I really relate to the lyrics. I can definitely relate to wanting my own space. That's why I live by myself, and it's expensive, but it's worth it for me because I just need my own space. And I just love that singer-songwriter vibe, again, because that's one of my favorite things of 70s music. Possibly my favorite thing about 70s music now are the singer-songwriters. In the past, I would have said disco or harder rock, but the singer-songwriters of that era, Laurel Canyon, they just... uh, Keep coming back to me. I love them all for the most part. You took the words right out of my mouth as far as uh, super relatable uh, lyrics. You know, you immediately feel exactly what the song is trying to say. In my opinion, at 136 on this track, we almost go into this double entendre because he's looking for his own space. And I really feel like at 136, we take this sonic trip almost into a space-like vibe. 
So I, I really love that about this song. And that continues through, not throughout the song, but for a good little piece, a good little chunk of, of this neat song. I actually did pick up on that. I'm going to have to take another listen to it now, but it makes perfect sense coming from this band. After all, they did record Space Cowboy. They did indeed. And now we are at the end of the album, Babes in the Wood. I love this title, first of all. It's an instrumental track, and uh, for me, this was a huge missed opportunity because I looked up the title, and this is the name of an English kid's story that's ripe for lyrical content. In fact, many murders of children in that region are referred to as Babes in the Wood murders because of their similarities to this story. So... We have something ripe for lyrical content, in my opinion. And this is an instrumental. That's just a missed opportunity to me. So this one is my least favorite on the album because I don't think it really goes anywhere. It's nice to listen to, but it doesn't go anywhere. And just the missed opportunity of it is heartbreaking to me. It was the B-side for Jet Airliner, but like I said earlier, I know that was because Miller wrote it himself so he could get more money, which is smart. Th- this one doesn't do it for me. I, I'm, I'm going to be on the other side of the coin on this one. We're going into my dreaded how do you end an album track. We're in a fully instrumental jam, which is not necessarily my favorite way to end an album. But this one, and I don't know the relating years on it, it really has a beautiful folky sound as an outro for this album. Coming in off this like crazy synth vibe starting in on the album to finish off with this almost reminiscent of like some songs from the wood Jethro Tall type of feel. I think it's a nice little uh, palate cleanser on the way out of this sonic exploration this sonic journey that we've gone through on this album start to finish i i i'd love to look into what you were talking about uh with the babes in the wood and and maybe so maybe you've got a song in there somewhere charlie you know <laughs> charlie fern babes in the wood but uh for me that that to end this album on such a light and again i'll say palette cleansing uh folky outro i really thought it was a, a neat way all righty different strokes for different folks you know it I, I was in my hippie zone on this one, man. I was all the way in my hippie zone for for this uh, for this whole entire album. It definitely as as crazy, not as crazy as hard as some of the points of this album go, as far as musically written and musically uh, performed. It definitely is a relaxing album for me. I could go start to finish on this album without noticing it five six times over. Yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from on that one. It is definitely a nice thing to have on in the background, for sure. Most definitely. And uh, now that we are at the point, what's your grade for the album? For this, I'm going B+. Almost made it to an A for me. Really enjoy everything on here. It is definitely a great way to start off the 70s. It doesn't necessarily get all the way up there in my top rankings, um, but a well put together album from somebody who's given us so many different pieces uh, throughout throughout the history of his sound. Uh, we're going B plus on Book of Dreams. I'm going to give it the same exact grade, actually. <laughs> I heard that. At first, I was going to just say B flat out, but I've had some time to think about this is a B plus. 
it gets a little plus for its its musicianship. I think it's a huge plus for its musicianship. A really, really well thought out album. And, you know, part of that back-to-back era of albums that really made it on both ends. Fly Like an Eagle and, and Book of Dreams. All righty. So, favorite track? For me, I'm Swing Town. I'm Swing Town all the way. A super simple riff that drives the whole entire song, but it is so infectious. Um, Swing Town really sang out to me. There's a lot of beautiful tracks on this album, but I'm going Swing Town. Jungle Love is mine. I love it. You know what else on the Jungle Love? Or go and finish why you love Jungle Love, and I'll add it on the end. It's just a great rock song. It's so much fun. It is. It's just a killer track. I love the riff on it. Maybe some of my love for it is amplified because of Everybody Loves Raymond. That's actually one of my top five shows ever. I love 90s sitcoms, so Everybody Loves Raymond is my jam, too. I don't think it has that much to do with the show, though. I think it's weird that it was chosen as the theme song. I think it's interesting, but honestly weird, because the Barones were a bit wilder than that. They were their own entity, as we know. (laughs) (laughs) But that Jungle Love, do you know where it ended up on the album? Number seven. You want to talk about a tight seven track right there. That's a tight seven track. I forgot to touch on it while we were going and I had to keep it till the end. But, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for a tight number seven. And this is one of them, man. Most definitely. Most definitely. Well, Thank you, Dad, for suggesting a great album for us to discuss. This one was a lot of fun. Yes, thank you. Next week, we are diving into The Houses of the Holy from Led Zeppelin. Your pick for the 70s. I cannot wait for this one. This will be a fun one. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we dive into our first Zeppelin uh, in here on the 70s. This is a super, super special one in my heart. You want to talk about challenging to listen to this one for Virgin Ears? A little sprinkle of what's to come. I've I've listened to this album way over 500 times, guaranteed. Uh, this is one of my favorite albums of all time. So this it's going to be a tough one to be critical on, but I got plenty of tea on this bad boy. Yeah, I can't wait to do this one. And it's a pretty interesting album in Led Zeppelin's career, too, following their biggest album, Led Zeppelin 4. It's always interesting to see the follow-up to the peak, I think. I agree. I agree. The commercial peak. It's always interesting to see what they do there. And they took some different turns. So I'm really excited to dive into Houses of the Holy. Here we go. You already got me excited. (laughs) Here we go. And I was actually told by my coworker at one of my jobs who works at Merriweather part-time, she got to hear Robert Plant earlier in June and said he still sounds fantastic, which made my heart very happy. Yeah, he's on the road with... Um, Krauss, Allison yeah, Krauss. Yeah, Krauss. And they always are awesome together, but I've heard some of uh, the live takes from this, and I'm I'm so sad I missed it. He is still hitting it, like hitting up in the peaks of him. And I've seen many incarnations of of himself live, and it's so great to hear that he's still out there rocking it. And they're doing Zeppelin, from what I heard. Like they're yeah. they're, which is great. They did the Battle of Evermore. I'm oh. sad I missed that. Are you joking me? Oh, goosebumps right here. But All right, we'd go on Zeppelin for millions of years. So. <laughs> we'll do that next week. In the meantime, yeah. please subscribe wherever you're listening and rate it wherever you're listening and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and Tea Podcast. Yes, have a happy 4th of July. 
This episode will be out after that. But yes, do have a great oh, holiday yeah, weekend. <laughs> have a great do have holiday. a great holiday. And we'll see you next week to visit the houses of the holy. Take care. Peace.